Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you've got the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash Y, that's W-H-Y, and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough as a listener to Why Always Us, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene as well. The beauty of Beer52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack thrown in as well. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash Y, that's W-H-Y, to get your case free. And don't forget right now, why always us listeners get two extra free beers? And welcome to Why Always Us, a Manchester City podcast from The Athletic. Now, football might be on hold for the time being, but we're going to continue with the podcast during the hiatus. I'm David Mooney, and with me again this week is Jack Pitt-Brook. Hi, Jack. Hi, David. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. It's, uh, it's good to hear. And we're also joined uh, for the first part of today's show by Michael Cox. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Hi, David. Yeah, very well. Always just pleased to have more you know, vague human contact during this week. So <laughs> thanks for having me on. Anytime. Uh, now, uh, during the break, there's still plenty of stuff going up on The Athletic. Jack, what have you been working on this week? Uh, I did the Tottenham podcast yesterday. I've been working on a big project about football TV. I don't want to give too much away, but you can read that on The Athletic on Saturday morning. Uh, and just trying to come up with ideas of things to write about during the long hiatus. Excellent stuff. Uh, Michael, we're going to be talking about your uh, Guardiola and tactics piece shortly because of uh, something you've done for The Athletic this week. But what else have you been working on? Uh, At the moment, I'm looking at some very uh, kind of nerdy statistics about uh, direct free kicks and how many of them are actually scored, how many of them actually end in goals, which is a relatively small proportion of the attempts, it must be said. Um, A bit of, um, yeah, the the figures for 2013-14 were very heavily influenced by Yaya Touré who scored, I think, three <laughs> free kicks from, I think, only six or seven shots that season, which is, you know, compared to Cristiano Ronaldo, who, you know, takes about 150 free kicks to score three goals, is quite impressive. I was going to say, it's, uh, it, it was a definitely a season where everybody, every City fan in the ground went, hey, I didn't know he could do that. Where's that come from? <laughs> yeah, right. So if you'd like some more of that or some more City content, or you'd like ad-free podcasts as well, then you can sign up and get a 40% discount now. Just use the code MANCITYPOD. We said we're going to start with um, Guardiola's tactics. Michael, I'm interested to begin with to hear how much you think Guardiola's approach to studying opponents and in video analysis, that sort of thing, is different to other managers. Uh, if they're all doing it, why is why is Guardiola so successful? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about Guardiola is when he first came around as Barcelona manager, there was this uh, sense that he... He just had one way to play and he, he you know, he, he focused solely on his side, a little bit like Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, who didn't look at all at the opposition. But it gradually became clear that he was just very studious, very in-depth and very good at, um, I think, finding the right balance between finding, you know, weaknesses in the opposition and, and getting his side to, to do what they're good at. So 
Look, I, I just think he's a very good coach in in a number of ways, and and part of that is is obviously perfecting the passing patterns that we've seen work so so excellently over, over recent years. And and the other is yeah, the other side of the game, which not as many managers like him are are so good at. So um, yeah, I think it's rare where you get a manager who can combine the the two sides of it, almost the Wenger approach of um, you know the attacking passing football and the Mourinho approach of looking at the opposition and reacting accordingly. Jack, I often think Guardiola doesn't get... I mean, it's weird to say this, that he doesn't get the credit he deserves sometimes. Just because whenever City lose a game or whenever his tactics are a bit off the wall and it costs City and, 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 they, don't, and they don't get the three points, we always say, oh, he's, he's overthought it. He's, he's th- just thought too much about it. But then when it does work, he doesn't get the credit for doing that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think overthinking, overthinking is a criticism which is only used when it goes wrong. Like City have... You know, people say, oh, well, if he'd only stuck to plan A, City would have won. But in reality, like, City have played, City have diverted from plan A quite a lot this season with some success. Like, the game at Old Trafford, the League Cup semi-final first leg, where they played that sort of strikerless 4-4-2 with De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva up front. That was very, very different from the normal approach. And it worked brilliantly well. And it's not, you know, I'm not taking the piss here when I say City should have won that game 7-0. Even when they won at Real Madrid 2-1, which was actually not that long ago, although it feels very long ago. <laughs> again, again, City played a kind of slightly unusual 4-4-2 and it wasn't the normal system and Gabriel Jesus out on the left and it worked really, really well. And so clearly the City are not... Um, clearly Guardiola does sometimes experiment and it succeeds, but I think people like to use overthinking as a stick to beat him with. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly though it's it's not been a season where it's been the ultimate success in the Premier League. Let's say, uh, Michael, you've been speculating. City have kind of got ten free games now, so you've been give it, given like you've almost given them a free pass to try whatever they like in the in the final ten games, haven't you? Yeah, well, it's kind of like more what I'm hoping for rather than what I expect. But <laughs> yeah, like you say, ten games. I mean, you look at the kind of you know, the professional gamblers and the statistical modelers, they think that City have a 99% chance of finishing second and a 1% chance of finishing third. So considering, you know, the difference between second and third doesn't even matter. Yeah, I mean, Guardiola can just have some fun. Obviously, um, you know, if, if those Champions League games are played and we really don't know the situation with that, then he'll be preparing for them. But, you know, it could be an unusual format. We hear the Champions League games could be kind of condensed in one block in week-long period or something so it could be that yeah there are just these 10 games where he can have complete fun with and and hopefully just come up with some tactics and some ideas that he you know he likes and um you know maybe wouldn't do when City are kind of going for the title and and every point counts a little bit like last season so yeah I just hope there's a bit more experimentation and uh, if ever there's a time for thinking or indeed overthinking then I guess this would be it. It's the next 10 games, isn't it? I mean, in terms of, of the Premier League position, Jack, like, like we were saying, I think we were saying a couple of weeks ago, with the, with this European bang hang, hanging over them, all they need to do is finish outside the bottom three, which they're going to do. So they kind of have free reign to do whatever they like. I mean, I've, having looked through uh, some of some of the things that Michael's calling for, one of the things seems to be uh, getting De Bruyne to get more balls into the box in, in dangerous areas. Um, he's been a key player for City this season. Yeah, De Bruyne's been great. I think Michael's right that so much something De Bruyne is incredible at is pulling out into that kind of uh, David Beckham zone, for want of a better word, like out out on the right and whipping those kind of cold crosses in, which always seem to kind of bend around the back of the defence and then meet Gabriel Jesus or Raheem Sterling at the far post. Yeah, he's been fantastic this year. The problem with De Bruyne is he's so ridiculously good in so many different ways that you 
there is almost no perfect way to play him because if you've got him in one particular area doing one particular job, you're always thinking, well, I kind of wish we had him 10 yards further back or in the middle or, you know, so, so ideally you'd want to have four or five of him on the pitch. And unfortunately, Guardiola is limited only to one. <laughs> Michael, what, what would you do? What, like, in a perfect world, you've made a couple of suggestions. What would you do with De Bruyne? Well, I should probably start by saying, I mean, personally, I think De Bruyne's been the best player in the league. You know, obviously, Liverpool have run away with the title, but I think De Bruyne's been the best individual. So this certainly isn't a kind of, you know, how can we get the best out of De Bruyne thing? Because I think he's been fantastic. But I just look at a couple of games, for example, that loss to to Liverpool uh, back in, was it October or November? Um, I just thought that, it was a rare occasion where City's passing patterns looked a bit predictable. And, you know, we know how much De Bruyne loves making those runs into the inside right channel, which works so well, for example, in that game against Tottenham, when I think he put in maybe the best individual display I've seen this season. But Liverpool were really prepared for that. And Fabinho was always tracking the runs into that channel. And I just thought that was a situation where uh, City needed to do something a little bit different and maybe get him in a wider position. And throughout that game, they were always... You know, I can't remember who was playing on the right that day, but it's usually been Bernardo Silva or Mahrez. They've always been like right on the touchline to increase the gap in the channel for De Bruyne. I thought that was a game where they could have used a system with the wide player coming inside, De Bruyne overlapping a little bit more. Um, and then if it's Fabinho who's been tasked with marking him, then you create a really difficult situation for him. Is he going to leave the centre of the pitch and go out and become an extra left back? Probably not. So then you're overloading the opposition left back and causing them problems. And I was just a little bit surprised in some of those games that Guardiola didn't vary his position a little bit more because Guardiola is a manager, as we know, that you know even if things are going well, he's not afraid to experiment and, and keep opposition teams guessing. I was going to say, in terms of uh, of the difference to City, though, what, what difference would it make to, to City to have De Bruyne a bit further wider than, than he is normally? Well, I just think in certain games, for example... You know, I was looking at the the fixtures that City have coming up, or or hopefully have coming up when we resume. One of them is against Burnley, and you know Burnley are a limited side in some ways, but I think they're maybe the best team in the league at being really, really compact and really narrow, and just preventing the opposition from finding any gaps in that block of eight players, the defence in the midfield, and obviously they leave so much space out wide because of that. And you know, another, you know, one of the more obscure ideas I had, which I don't necessarily expect to happen, but I'd love to see, was to use De Bruyne as a right-back in that game. Because if you're playing against Burnley, the one player you're scared of on the counter-attack is uh, Dwight McNeil, who's been fantastic this season. So if you were to play De Bruyne as a right-back and just get him to play, you know, almost as a bonus right-winger, not only would he be finding space uh, on the outside of the team and, and have opportunities to whip crosses into the box. And City have crossed the ball a fair amount this season, but it hasn't always been from you know, really dangerous positions. Um, not only would you get that, you'd also get McNeil, who's the most dangerous uh, player, forced to become a kind of second left back. And, you know, that's what Guardiola loves to do. He loves to drag opponents out of shape and and ensure that they can't play their natural game. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily suggest it if if uh, City are playing the Champions League final tomorrow. But like <laughs> I say, with these, with these 10 free games, why not have a little bit of fun and experiment? And even if it doesn't work out, maybe you'll just improve a, a different aspect of one or two players' games that could be useful for next season. I don't know about you, Jack, but we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm getting uh, Alano at right-back vibes there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what City need. Particularly, in, in, I think Pep would have... I mean, I say this as a joke, but it's also what I think. Like, it would be nice, to, it would be interesting to see Alano playing with the kind of Pep era team 
and I'm sure Pep would. I mean, look, Pep has never seen an attacking midfielder that he a technical attacking midfielder he didn't want to crowbar into the side. So I'm sure he would try and find a place <laughs> for Alano. God knows where. Maybe at left back. Maybe, maybe I, I, well, I, if anybody can play at left back, I mean that, that's the that's the problem City have yeah. had recently. I, the, the interesting thing about all this though is that um, I, I can't remember the, the exact game. It was either Newcastle or Huddersfield um, last season at the Etihad. Uh, Guardiola wanted to get more attacking players into the team, and he just decided, oh, I'm not I'm not going to play a right back. He looked at how the opposition were going to set up, and decided that his his back three with a one full back on the left and two centre halves would be able to to, to, to kind of cover it. So uh, maybe. Maybe that's not quite so left field as, as you as you think, Michael. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same actually. Um, like you, I, I couldn't quite remember which game it was that he did that, and indeed I didn't even bother to go and look it up. So, um, <laughs> me neither. Poor, it's okay. Yeah, poor research for me on that front. But yeah, I, I do recall a couple of games where yeah, there was just a player covering whether it was John Stones at right side of centre back. Obviously, Fernandinho can cover ground and is intelligent enough to fill in. So yeah, it, it does feel like you know this is a manager who is is comfortable playing with almost a reduced back line, I'd say, not even necessarily a three-man defence, like you say. Sometimes it just appears like a four-man defence without a right-back. Um, and, you know, De Bruyne, obviously, he's not a natural defender. He's very much a, a natural attacker. But, I mean, he's got the physique to defend properly. I think he's got the energy to track runs. I think of him as a very tactically disciplined and tactically intelligent player. And he's the kind of player who you kind of fancy could play pretty much anywhere. I mean, it's like that old debate. If you had, you know, 10 of the same player in, in a team, who'd be the best one in the Premier League? I think De Bruyne would probably be quite quite close to being that player for me. I just think he could pretty much play in any position on the pitch. I'm interested though, Jack. One of City's issues this season, I think, has been not necessarily been creating the chances, but actually finishing them and and, and scoring the goals when when they've created it. Um, it. It just seems to me like like wherever you put De Bruyne or wherever you wherever you create these chances from, the problem has still been not getting the ball in the net. Yeah, well, I think City's great strength under Guardiola has been creating very very good chances. Like that's clearly how you know. The classic Guardiola goal where the ball goes <clears throat> down to a fullback or whatever and is pulled back into into the six-yard box to create a tap-in for Aguero or Sterling or Sane or whoever is clearly geared towards creating like high-quality chances. And that's how City scored, you know, has scored, what's it, 100 goals in each of the last two seasons or whatever it is. I wonder why that's faded this a bit this year. I don't know. I mean, it looks to me with the naked eyes if Aguero's finishing isn't much worse than before. I do think Sterling has hit a big, big finishing. Uh, what's the best way of putting it? Drought, maybe. And he was fantastic for the first few months of the season, but since October, October or November, his finishing's collapsed. And maybe that's why City aren't being as ruthless as they were in previous seasons. I suppose it also helps if you score a few penalties along the way. That's uh, that's been an issue as well. Um, something else from from Michael's piece, Jack, was was uh, the idea of getting a left footer out on the left. And um, certainly in his first two seasons, Guardiola was very keen on on certainly Sane wide left and Sterling wide right, really stretched the pitch. Um, but he's not done that in the last couple of years, and it, and it feels like something that he might want to go back to. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I remember traditionally he would always want to have either Sane or if not Sane, then Mendy if he was fit out on the left to give City that width. But obviously Sane's missed all of this season and Mendy is not no more reliable now than he was when City signed him three years ago. But if you don't have if you don't have Sane or Mendy and you're left with, say, Zinchenko as the left back and then uh Mares or Sterling coming in from the left hand side then you don't then you don't have an orthodox left footer 
out who can stretch the play on that side. And it means that City's play has been a lot more has been a lot more narrow. It's frustrating really because City's best football has generally been with either a Mendy or a Sane in the team. I mean, generally Pep wouldn't play both of them at the same time. But if you don't have either of those two players, then suddenly the game gets quite constricted. And I mean, it's I wonder whether that is one of the main factors as to why City haven't been quite as potent going forward this year as they have been in the last two seasons. Michael, do you think it helped Sterling as well to be back on the on the right hand side if if Mares or Bernardo played wide left? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I tend to think with Sterling that he plays a similar kind of game from either side. But if I had to choose, I think he's probably been better on the right. I really liked it when City played with Sané and Sterling down the flanks and kind of attacked in behind the opposition more. Um, and yeah, I think maybe just for it sounds silly, but maybe just for a change of scene almost for Sterling because his form in this calendar year hasn't been particularly great. And I think sometimes just by shifting a player's position, you just get them to think about different things. Sometimes there's just a freshness that kind of reinvigorates their play. So, yeah, again, I've been a little bit surprised that Guardiola hasn't tried that more. Um, and I think it's probably been, maybe not among City fans who watch the, the team week in, week out, but in the kind of general punditry I've seen, there's been a surprising lack of focus on the fact that City really in their title winning sides um, generally played with, with two natural wingers, if you like. And this season, they've really played with the wingers coming inside. It seems like quite a big change. Um, and although City have been creating chances and missing them, you do wonder whether they would benefit from uh, going back to the, the type of way they played a, a couple of seasons ago. Do you think it would affect Mahrez? Because I think I, I think behind De Bruyne, Mahrez has been one of City's best performers this season. And he's he's always played wide right, cutting in into the left. And if you put him over to the left-hand side, could it could it change his game too much? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I mean, I've like like you say, I've never seen Mahrez play there. Um, I would like to see him play there just just to have a look at it. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that his type of game probably is, you know, far more than someone like Sterling is is dependent upon being on the right and cutting inside onto his left foot and and generally trying to shoot from you know twenty yards edge of the box position. So yeah, I think it would unquestionably change his game a lot, but. Again, you know, City haven't had that option going down the line on the left. Like Jack says, not just because of Sané's absence, but because Mendy has has not quite become the player that we expected when he signed from Monaco. So just to have occasionally that proper left-footed option, you know, stretching the play a bit, I think might uh, might bring something different to the team. Now, Michael, I wanted to ask you, when I when I read the piece, uh, I, I just wanted to check, is, is everything OK? Are you all right? Because I read the words Rodri is an attacking midfielder and I was worried he'd had a bang on the head or something. <laughs> yeah, that, I guess that was one that was uh, questioned by a couple of people. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it kind of refers to a, a specific game um, when Bayern, so Guardiola's Bayern played Dortmund back in 2013. It was the first time that uh, Guardiola had faced a Klopp side and what, from what I remember, I mean, he was so kind of scared of Dortmund's pressing that he almost went a little bit long ball, a little bit route one and basically played, I think, Mandzukic up front and uh, Xavi Martinez, who was usually a defensive midfielder or sometimes a centre-back for Guardiola. So kind of like what Rodri does. And he played at the top of the midfield triangle and for the first 10 or 15 minutes was almost like this supplementary target man kind of thing. And um, yeah, it was a strange game where Bayern actually won 3-0, but they won 3-0 with goals in the last 15 minutes. So it wasn't necessarily the tactics at the start that really uh, created the breakthrough. But I just found it interesting to see Guardiola doing something that 
absolutely no one would have expected. And I think of Rodri as a pretty similar player to Martinez, you know, at their respective peaks. So, um, yeah, another one of those where um, I don't necessarily expect it to happen, but I, uh, I would love to see it. Jack, given that replacing Fernandinho for City in, in midfield has been a major issue for this season, um, I think the last thing you'd want to do maybe is, is, is stop Rodri getting any of that development time, is it? Yeah, it's, I mean, the Fernandinho succession issue has been a really, really difficult one, hasn't it? Because he's so... We, we, we've seen that this season when Fernandinho's played at centre-back. Like, City can't... It's, it's not that City can't cope without him. They can't cope without him being in holding midfield. He's just so so important to the way they play, and look, I've been pretty impressed with Rodri. I think he's I think he's he looks really good. Like he's very good on the ball. He's a, he's been a little bit slow in terms of what he does off the ball. I think so far, but he's getting better. He's quite a big guy as well. He's not afraid to put himself about. But I still don't think you know you'd still probably rather have Fernandinho than Rodri in that position. Everything else being equal, so I wonder whether I wonder what the best way of you know, transitioning from Fernandinho to Rodri, which they are going to have to do because Fernandinho is very old. I don't know what the best way of managing that process is. Yeah, and in terms of uh, of, of a bit of a target man and height up, up front, uh, Jack, I mean, where's Eddie Dzeko gone? Where, where is he when you need him, the big man? I, I knew you were going to say that. I knew <laughs> you were going to say that. We both have we both have that love affair with him. That's the, that's the problem. Um uh, the interesting thing, while we're on the defence, um, Michael, I want to get your thoughts on, on how Fernandinho has slotted in there because um, I think City were caught unawares by a company leaving in the summer and, and, and just how kind of ramshackle the defence has been this season, given how much was invested in it in the last few years. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, it kind of goes back to what Jack said before. I think that Fernandinho's pretty much fine as a centre-back. I think the problem is just that then you don't have Fernandinho in central midfield. And I think the difference is that over the years, Guardiola has generally... His, his squads have generally had one fewer centre-back than you expect, and he's just turned a midfielder into a, a centre-back. But for example, at Barcelona, he did that with Mascherano, and he still had Busquets in the holding role, who was his first choice uh, in that position. It was a similar thing at um, Bayern Munich. He had so many top-class central midfielders, Xavi Alonso in particular. Um, it feels like a different situation to me now when he's actually moving his best holding midfielder into the defence. And so, yeah, for, for me, as an individual, Fernandinho is absolutely fine in the centre of defence. But uh, I just think that the lack of protection he gets uh, from him not being in midfield really is the the bigger issue for City. And like you say, they've they've struggled to move on from him in that position because he's just, you know, he dominates it so well. And, and to a certain extent, I think, you know, Guardiola built this side in this 4-3-3 um, with him in mind for that position. So it's not surprising that others have, have struggled to play it exactly as he does. I'm interested, just just talk me through what you mean when you talk about um, rotation in defensive positions, because this was this was the one uh, of, of your suggestions that I couldn't quite visualise very well. Yeah, so, the, so this was, um, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, one again, one of the more uh, obscure ideas, but just because we've seen, I mean, we've seen, Guardiola dropping centre-backs, sorry, central midfielders into centre-back. Um, and we've also seen the midfield positions taken up by full-backs. And considering that City have players like John Stones at his best and Laporte who can move out to full-back, I just think almost like you could have three players who rotate those positions. Um, so the, the midfielder would drop to centre-back, the centre-back moves wide, the full-back drops inside, which again sounds crazy. But when you look at what Atalanta, for example, are doing this season in Syria and indeed in the Champions League, they kind of do a similar thing with 
with four players actually in their three-five-two system, where there's almost two diamonds down either side of the pitch and they basically just constantly rotate and drag the opposition out of shape. And I know that Guardiola will be watching Atalanta closely because for me, they've been the most interesting, the most exciting attacking side in Europe over the last 18 months. And they're very good at just dragging the opposition out of shape and finding gaps to play through. So it's just those little nuances that I think he'll be focusing on. You know, obviously he's, he can't really work with the players on the training ground at the moment, but working on in a kind of, very theoretical and technical level um and i just think there's a good chance that we will see a couple of things in the next few months if football does resume eventually that uh, we haven't seen before why do you think this season's not worked out as well for him as the last couple of seasons has, has it just been a case of that liverpool have been so good yeah a little bit of that i, I think the finishing you touched on earlier um i do wonder whether you know there's there's a a slight element of coming to the end of a cycle with this with this team and obviously there's a couple of players who, who will be moving on, David Silva in particular. And I think, you know, in the past Guardiola has been keen to refresh the side. I remember when he left Barcelona in twenty twelve, supposedly his conditions to the board, um, if he was going to stay on for an extra season, was he wanted rid of uh, I think Alves, Piquet and Fabregas, who were three quite you know, established players, quite first-team players, but he'd fallen out with them for some reason. I'm not suggesting that he's fallen out personally with any players at City, but I think that, you know, he's a manager who likes to to evolve. He likes to keep opponents guessing. And um, yeah, maybe there's just a sense that it's been the same group for one too many seasons. Um, but, you know, there's so much potential within this squad. There's so many players who I think will will step up next season if Silver, well, when Silver leaves, that will give more time to Bernardo in a central position. Obviously, Phil Foden will see more of him. So, yeah, I don't I don't uh, foresee City being this far behind Liverpool next year. I, I think if the season was to start again, I'd, I'd put them pretty much uh, 50-50, to be honest. Well, Michael, thank you very much for, for joining us on this episode of Why Wiz Us. If you'd like to read Michael's piece uh, and find out some uh, some football ideas that are being thrown at the wall for Guardiola for the remainder of the season, uh, you can sign up to The Athletic now and get a 40% discount with the code MANCITYPOD. Michael, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, with everybody advised to stay at home, you might have noticed that you want to spruce it up or give certain rooms a fresh new look. The people behind the Ink Slinger creates personalised and bespoke cards, artworks and prints that could brighten up your bedroom and liven up your living room. If you have a special occasion coming up, they can help out as well, especially if you're looking for a birthday or anniversary card that's got a unique touch or even things like stationery or wedding invitations, all at very affordable prices. You'd also be supporting a local family business and supporting a family business of city fans as well. You can search for the Ink Slinger on Instagram to get a feel for what they offer and everything comes with a personal touch to deliver the perfect results. Check out the Ink Slinger on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for more details. Now, Jack, me and you love a good old trip down memory lane. And since we've been talking with Michael Cox about Guardiola's exciting brand of football, I thought we'd go back to another exciting time of football at City. Uh, me and you were kids growing up in a world where City had barely won anything. And then, wham, under Kevin Keegan's management, uh, going to Main Road suddenly became very, very exciting. Um, what do you, wh- When I say Kevin Keegan's City, what's, what's the classic thing you think of? Bernabeu and Berkovic. It's the, it's the promotion season. It's 2001-2 playing brilliant football like the the time in the Premier League there were some good moments um the first season up in the Premier League was you know they played pretty well there was some uh Anelka was obviously a great signing last season at Main Road all that stuff and then it faded but really I think the best memories are probably of promotion 
It is. I, I, I always think as well, the start of that season, I was genuinely a little bit concerned about whether they were going to be able to bounce back to the Premier League because I think they, they, kept, they kept winning games with really big score lines like 4-3 and 4-2 that sort of thing but then they'd lose games 4-0 I remember a big 4-0 loss at West Brom and yeah, I just, I just like it was just an, an absolute roller coaster at the time and I mean you just didn't know what you were going to get from this this Keegan team at that time yeah I, so I've been, I was in preparation to this podcast I was just looking through the results and that West Brom won I remember it very well like because it's quite the start of the season and City had you know, the City had gone 1-3-0, lost 2-0, 1-5-2, 1-4-2, 1-4-2, lost 4-0 at West Brom. And I remember talking to my dad about it and thinking, this doesn't look good, does it, if they're going to be this inconsistent all over the place. And then two games after that, they lost 4-3 at Coventry City. And yet they managed to make it work. Like, it's not like they, they massively tightened up or anything, I don't think. It's more just that they became so, you know, that they found a balance which allowed them to keep winning and scoring lots of goals. It was it was the free signing as well of of Benabia. I think he the the, the folklore story is that he he signed on the Friday, um, got a flight back from Paris on the Saturday morning, and then ran the show against Birmingham on the Saturday afternoon. It was it was incredible signing. Where where on earth that came from? I'm not sure. Yeah, he was an amazing. He was amazing. I I must admit I didn't I hadn't really heard of him that much when City had signed him. He'd obviously played you know he played for. Monaco and PSG so it's pretty you know he had quite a lot of you know he had good pedigree for the French league but this was back at a time of course like this was almost 20 years ago when you know football fans might not have had so much familiarity with players who were quite good in Liga uh, and then he he kind of came in from from nowhere really and was incredible and that like like you said that partnership he created with Berkovic um that you always said that oh well people always said that that you couldn't have that many attacking players in a team and i think guardiola and keegan have both proved that wrong yeah well the thing is with, with guardiola it was you know there was some suspicion about whether or not you could have two two creative attacking midfielders in say de bruyne and silva or silva and bernardo silva or whatever combination it was in the premier league but keegan had two effectively two number tens in in the second tier 20 years ago and like you know just think about what the championship was like in 2001-2 you know bad pitches bad refs getting kicked up in the air it was an incredibly you know let's be honest it was a very rudimentary level of football compared to say the kind of clean pitches and protected refereeing of the premier league and the guardiola era so for key look I'm, I'm going to go there. It was, Keegan is a, <laughs> I'm going to use the V word, visionary. Kevin Keegan is a visionary for playing Bernabeu and Berkovic together in the second tier 20 years ago. And it worked. And it, he was Just like Pep, he took a massive gamble in terms of creativity, attacking football, um, you know, playing the game the right way, regardless of how, of how difficult the circumstances were. And he was completely vindicated for it. It's it's funny because uh, when you when you read the list of names and you've got Berkovic, Bernabia, Wright, Phillips, Gota, Huckabee, One Chop, can you understand why it's still one of my favourite City teams? Yeah, completely. Because it was like I, I can't really remember City playing. When was the last time before this City played such good attacking football? I know they had they had some good moments on like the Brian Horton team back when they had wingers and 4-4-2 and yeah. B-Green Summerby on the two wings and then two out of, what, Rosler, Quinn... Rosler, Walsh, Walsh Qual- Qu- yeah. Quinn up front. So that that was, what, 90, 93, 94, 95? So that was pretty good. Um, but this was like... This was a 
um, th this is probably a more like technical, creative, imaginative style of play, I think, than that. And City fans hadn't seen anything like this for ages. Like, like, don't get me wrong, Joe Royal was Joe Royal was incredible, and his the back-to-back -back promotions. You know, he cannot be Joe Royal cannot be praised highly enough for get for getting those consecutive promotions. But you know, the football itself was quite. It was like you know, fairly conventional English football. You know, they had Mark Kennedy was obviously fantastic on the wing, and they had some good strikers. And but this was something else. This was just a different level, and it's like, and that's why. Yeah, that's why I will use the. I, that, that's why it is fair to call Keegan a visionary for getting the team to play this way. In many ways, I suppose, like, one of the things that sticks out for me is that this was the. Because it was the final era at Main Road, it feels quite fitting that City left Main Road playing good, entertaining football and not dogging around, you know, the, the second and third tier. You know, scrapping for whatever they can get under under the likes of you know Alan Ball, Frank Clark, you know the, the thirty three days of Steve Koppel. It, it feels like it, it was a really good fit for City at exactly the right time. Yeah, can you imagine like the sourness if City's last game at Main Road had been getting relegated, or, <laughs> or just or had been, or if their last season at Main Road they'd scored ten goals at home like that Stuart Pearce season at what's now the Etihad. You know what I mean? Like how miserable that would have been. So it was amazing that in what in the in the following season, the Premier League, Keegan's second season, they managed to you know say goodbye to Main Road with such positive memories. What What do you think went wrong for him at City? Because by by the time he left, he he had certainly become a faded star, hadn't he? Definitely, definitely. There's no getting past the fact that the second, the last eighteen months or so, perhaps of the key, maybe the last year of, the, of Keegan was pretty miserable. Um, I think the signings weren't good. I think that they. I think he was. I think we can all say now the signings of McManaman and Fowler were absolutely not what City needed. They were. They weren't as good as they were ten years before. They didn't really add much to the team. I think that it became City became a little bit of a retirement home for kind of formerly good players. If you know what I mean, like those two, Bosvelt, Tarnat was okay, I suppose, but they were a bit. Um, they kind of the team, they kind of lacked that kind of impetus that they had, the sort of drive that they had in the earlier years. It became a little bit too comfortable. And also, you know, maybe it's fair in Keegan's defence, you could say that the stadium transition was hard. Like it's always, you know, we know this from looking at West Ham or Arsenal. Like if you go into a new stadium, it is difficult for the first year or two because you've lost that atmosphere and the fans don't really know how it's meant to work in the new ground. And maybe that, maybe that made it slightly harder for Keegan. But I definitely feel like. His, the Keegan cycle ran its course quite quickly and the last you know once they lost that kind of buzz and vibe they had in the in the first year or two it, it became quite miserable yeah he um I just just looking through some of his some of his signings it was it was very much almost like they ran out of money because when you think of it in his early years he always he always seemed to, to to spend a fair chunk of money but bring in quality players and by the last last couple of seasons they are free transfers or they're a couple of hundred thousand pounds here and there and it's you can kind of tell does that make sense yeah completely completely they did um they were obviously never as quite as flush with money as they might have hoped and uh, the fact that they did pour quite a lot of money into McManaman and Fowler, I don't really think especially helped. And you, you see, I mean, like it's easy to say with hindsight because 
back then, you know, McManaman would have been at Real Madrid and Fowler had obviously been an incredible player for Liverpool and then gone to Leeds. So you can kind of understand why they were going that direction. But uh, it just became a little, you know, when you sign, I mean, so many Premier League clubs have been through this. Like you sign big, big name, experienced players who've had great careers at other clubs. And then suddenly you kind of, you lose that like hunger and vigour that, that really makes a good team. Was the signing of Fowler the the one that started to tip it though? Because they also lost David Bernstein over that over that signing, and and he'd been the chairman that had been, really he'd really offered stability for City when they needed it from about ninety eight onwards. Yeah, definitely. Bernstein was a huge loss to the club. Like in the course of, um, so I'm I'm writing the series about the uh, the ninety eight ninety nine season at the moment, which I'm enjoying a lot. And so I've read various books, and this I've read your book, uh, and just been reading as well Tim Rich's book um, about it and what what comes through in all of this is is how like the incredible foresight but also like stability and sensibleness of Bernstein even when the club was at its lowest ever ebb to know like exactly how much money they could spend and trying to keep the show on the road even though it was very very difficult not you know, not overspending, trying to cut the wage bill, get rid of all the all the big names and his like financial management of the club through this incredibly difficult period, always knowing that the goal was to get City safely into the new stadium from which everything else would become possible, was incredible. Like, he, you know, j- j- just like Joe Royal, I don't think David Bernstein can be praised enough for his role in that. And then and then to, to lose him, I think, really spoke to the kind of lack of direction at the top of the club, which really became like the defining story of the middle part of the 2000s. Yeah, he, uh, he, he moved on and then it was almost as if Keegan was given... A little bit too much power. I don't. I don't know if that. I, this is purely speculation, but it was almost as if Keegan became bigger than than the position he held at the time. Yeah, I wonder whether it was. You think, as as ever with any any situation, you kind of want a manager to be balanced out by a strong board who could who can take the best decisions in the long term interest of the club. And so you wonder whether Keegan signing these kind of big name, big name, big money players you know using up money that could be spent on other things you think really i mean was it in the best interest of the club to sign manman and fowler probably not if we're honest and you what you think maybe city would have been safer with you know it with bernstein still with his hands on the levers yeah. through the rest of the decade they they almost lost their identity it's weird because as when when you if if you were to rank kevin keegan's seasons in terms of of uh, entertainment value, let's say, uh, you would probably rank them in the order that they happened. So it so it got steadily less entertaining during his uh, during his time there. Um, but the interesting thing is the success level. He he brought European football back. He you know he, he got City back into the Premier League and kept them there, kept them stable. There were some you know big wins. He got City's first win over United in in thirteen years. There was the the ecstasy of that 4-3 comeback at Spurs so it's kind of like juxtaposed the whole thing was kind of like juxtaposed with how things were going yeah and you're right like I, th- I completely agree with you when you say lack of identity like they did lose identity they did all that kind of that kind of togetherness and that clear way of playing and that engagement with the fans that they had in that first year and you know pretty much in that second season as well back up in the Premier League, that all sort of started to fade away. Like, they could have gone down in 2003-04, finishing 16th in the Premier League. And then the following season, where which, what where Keegan left, what, to in March, and then handed over yeah, to Yeah, about two-thirds of the way through, yeah. Yeah, they'd been pretty miserable for most of that season as well. 
Um, so yeah, I think l losing identity is exactly the right way of describing it. And I, I certainly agree that it became, you know, from a very, from a high peak at the start, it was then basically, it basically got slowly worse over the course of his tenure. What's your favourite Keegan game that, that, that City played in? Because there were a few crackers in there. Um, I would say beating any of the United wins. The last one yeah. at Main Road. Yeah, the last that's... one at Main Road, I think. It, it's incredible. so easy to go back to that one. It was it, it was a day as well when I didn't I didn't think City were going to win. I thought City were going to get absolutely spanked, and then um, they just. I, I watched it back recently, and you know, City weren't. I'm not going to say City were better than United because United had long spells in that game of dominance, but it it all also felt like City were in full control of it. Once they got that three one lead, they were in control of the game, and. I can't ever remember going into a derby before that, ever thinking that we'd get close to United. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. And, you know, the the Gary Neville moment is like one of the most iconic moments in derby, in derbies. And it's easy to get, you know, it's easy to get slightly, you know, you look at City, I mean, I know City just lost United the other week, but generally speaking, City's record in derbies in the last 10 years has been, like, in historical terms, really surprisingly good. And so, you, you know, you, I wonder how younger City fans feel about this, but you have to kind of get back into the mindset of what it was like to be United in, in back in 2002, 2003, 2004. It was unimaginable, certainly for me, as a, you know, growing up as a City fan who'd almost never seen City beat United before up until that point. It was almost literally unimaginable that City could record these wins over United. Yeah, and then the four one at uh, at the Etihad again. Um, like I, I remember speaking to Sean Wright Phillips about that about that final goal that uh, that he scored. Oh yeah, and he he, he just said I, I I give it up. I didn't think the ball was going. I didn't think the ball was going to stay in, so I give up on it. And then I realised it was staying in. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to run after this now. And I was so exhausted when I got to the box. I just thought, oh, I'm going to hit it, and it flies in the top corner. It like couldn't be a more perfect yeah. day. Yeah, like I love Wright Phillips. Like his to be fair, Wright Phillips was. As the Keegan, as the kind of early buzz of the Keegan era wore off, Wright Phillips became, you know, by far the best thing about City. And his, um, the way that he took that that final goal in the four-one, like that, that really summed up why the fans loved him so much. Why he was because he had that amazing, like, kind of natural running style, and the way that he hits it with, he's so relaxed in the way that he strikes the ball, and it just whistles straight off his foot, and. Um, right into the into the top of the net yeah it's like you, you watch him play and he plays with this kind of fun ease Sean Wright Phillips and it, yeah it's it's still I mean any City fan who watched that goal will still get goosebumps now because it was such it was such a great goal on a really special day mind you I don't know if you saw did you see uh Vincent Company's testimonial with uh with Wright Phillips in um I kind of half watched it, yeah. Uh, because it was it was clear by that stage that that it the magic had gone from those boots by that <laughs> stage. <laughs> Wasn't my, quite happening my, for him. My memory of watching the company testimonial is that the players who were like reliant on being quick when they were players are now rubbish, whereas the players who were never quick were actually quite good. So I'm trying to remember specifically who, but there was some. Was an Arteta playing, and he looked quite good. He looked quite good. Yeah. Nasri, Nasri looked good. Um, yeah. And and Colo Torre still played as if the wheels were about to fall off, which I which <laughs> I mean, if you don't ever change is the motto, I think from that one. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, just on a couple of other classic uh, Keegan results, we can't uh, we can't not touch on the uh, the four three comeback at Spurs. Um, 
because I, I'd given up on that game. I, I, I Barton off at half time, City down to ten men, three nil down away from home. Not you know having won one in about sixteen games. Um, I, I was off playing football, and I decided oh, I'm just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother with it. And then we got all the way home from football, and my mum said, "You know, City have won," and I was like, "No, not a clue." Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I remember what. I can't remember if that was on Sky or not. I we I I didn't watch it. I don't know if it was televised or not. But I just, I literally followed it on teletext with my dad. So just we had teletext on, and you would see each goal popping up. And you're like, surely not. They can't do this. Uh, <laughs> and it's only so. So obviously, only subsequently that I've seen I've seen it all. But yeah, it's kind of um. I mean, it's literally it's literally unbelievable to have to have won the game in those circumstances. There's there's a great shot. Um, go and watch the highlights, Matt, because there's a great shot of Sunji High. I won't say what he says, um, but you can see quite clearly he, uh, with, with, without any lip reading skills that he is amazed when that fourth goal has gone in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was yeah incredible. Who was it who was saying the other day about Arnie Arison that save? Oh, it was one. It was somebody on the. Was it on the Q and A for the Court Heroes? I think it was on. I think it was on. I think it was on the Q and A or maybe a tweet in for the pod that we did last week. Yeah, that I mean that save in itself as well. Uh, possibly one of the best saves I've ever seen. Yeah, amazing! What a man! I wonder what he's up to now. We should interview him. Yeah, that's uh, that's my, that's my task for you for this week. Uh, for before next <laughs> week's show, Jack, you've got to track down an down. interview, uh, Arnie Harrison. Sam Lee's first job back. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm genu- genuinely looking forward to that one. But for now, that's it for this week's Why Always Us. You've been listening to Jack Pitbrook. Thanks a lot. And me, David Mooney. We'll still be making Why Always Us during the break, and there's plenty of Manchester City articles going up on The Athletic during this time as well. And speaking of uh, Manchester Derby goals, as we were there, Ollie Kay's written about Andy Hinchcliffe's chance at the far post back in September 1989. So if you'd like to give that a read, or uh, you'd like ad-free podcasts as well, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code MANCITYPOD. Music 